here. Um, my name is Lawrence, and uh, I need this device, the geriatric device for myself today, because <laughs> um, I had a little bit of sciatica, and it's killing me as I speak. So, so I can sit down, and if I'm grimacing, that's okay. We have. We have nurse here, so I don't know if we have an MD here that can help me, but uh, I can definitely use some help. But, um, I, some of you I have not met, but I think a lot of you have not met. I don't work here at this church, just in case you wonder why is he speaking. Uh, I'm, I work as a spiritual health practitioner at St. Paul's Hospital. So in a sense, I'm a, I'm a pastor, but I work in an institutional setting. Uh, part of this family, love to be with you this morning worshiping, and of course for those of you that are online, hello, good morning, um, and thank you for the worship team for leading us uh, with wonderful. I call them can open the songs. I think they're, I think that prepares us to receive the work of God, and of course Evelyn for reading the, uh, the text today. Today begins the seventh Sunday after Epiphany, and two weeks from now, we enter into the Lenten season, which is, I, in my opinion, one of the most important seasons in the liturgical calendar. And next week, I have to admit, I'm really excited. Uh, I don't know who's speaking, but next week is Transfiguration Sunday. And I always love hearing, like, just being amazed by that passage and, and see how God works continuously in our lives and throughout history. It's one of the most exciting Sundays of the church calendar. Now, today is the 20th of February. As you know, it's a long weekend. And if I asked you what you did a week ago on the 13th, last Sunday, chances are most of you could tell me quite a bit what you did on the 13th, you know, a week from, uh, ago. Uh, but what about June 15, 2011? Don't look at your phone. I mean, you have to scroll back quite a bit. Did you remember what you did on that day? Anything special that happened to you on that day? Oh, maybe you weren't even in Vancouver at that point. For me, that date was a very memorable one. I was, uh, I was on call, actually, for, for my team at the hospital, and I was on a late shift. And so and I, I got off my ship around... 7.30ish, and I was about to go home. I want to get home ASAP because I want to watch hockey on TV. And it was the night, some of you remember, the Canucks lost game seven of the Stanley Cup final. Oh, boo, right? Yeah, that was the night where there was a riot in downtown, right? This happens every 12 years, hopefully not, okay? And our team has not recovered since. Um, I never liked the Boston Bruins. I never liked them growing up. But that night, I had a very new sense of disdain towards them. Uh, they bullied my team, shattered my dream. I actually cry. Um, I don't cry when people die in the hospital, but I cry when my hockey team lost. Um, it sucked. I was gutted, and I couldn't sleep. And so every single time since that day, when I get to watch them on TV, or whether they play against us or they play against other teams, I want them to lose. I want them to lose badly. And, and there's no one on that team that I dislike more than this guy. In case you don't know him, his name is Brad Marchand. 
is a very talented but very evil hockey player. <laughs> now, why do I mention him? Like, you know, for those of you that are non-hockey fans, you're like, come on, move up, move on, right? Last week, he made it to the news on, on, on the sports channel, not for scoring, which to be, to be honest, I'm a fair person, he was very good, but for sucker punching a goalie of another team. So I saw the clips on, on Twitter, and I was triggered. My stomach was actually like turning upside down, and I was like, my heart rate was up. I was just, just, oh, this evil guy again. He's doing this to other people. He was always my hockey enemy, and he will probably always be. Now, sports are sports. It's not real life. Well, it is, it is. Players are not real enemies, and chances are we have real enemies in our lives. Now, some of them we know personally, perhaps even in our workplace, in our family. Hopefully not, but perhaps. And some, perhaps, they only exist on cyberspace. I wonder what they look like. I don't wonder what the names are for you. And, and what have they done to make it to your list? What is Jesus talking about when he said that we need to love our enemies in Luke 6? And what does that mean when the scripture commands us to, to love our enemies with grace and compassion? Now, if you've been following our, our sermon series this, uh, this uh, last couple of months, we've been following the lectionary. And today's text is Luke 6, 26 to 38. If you have your Bible, I'd love you to uh, turn to it because we'll refer to that quite a bit. This is the second half of Luke 6. And in many ways, it's a sermon on its own. And we're right in the middle section of the sermon on the plane by Jesus. Now, last week, if you were here, you remember that we unpacked it quite a bit of sort of the part one of the sermon, I call it, the Beatitudes in verses 17 to 26. Now, if you read beyond today's passage, you will actually see part three of the sermon in verses 39 to 49. It uh, calls for, this passage, part three, calls for righteous living mindset, a foot-bearing lifestyle, and a posture of wisdom building in the way that we, we construct our lives as we follow Jesus. So we have three sermons here in this meta sermon, and today we're in the middle of it, part two. So how do you preach about a sermon? About a sermon. How do you preach a sermon about a sermon? Which is kind of odd, right? So in a sense, I got lucky today when I picked this day to speak because the sermon has been written for you. It's right in front of your eyes. It's right in your Bible. The outline of the text here is very simple. You don't need a commentary to help out. Both in the principle of the Jesus ethics and the application points, it's very simple. We are to show love for our enemies. We are to do good to them. We need to not expect any payback, any favors when we lend or support other people. And lastly, don't judge because we're being measured by the same measuring stick. Now the challenge is, how can we live this Jesus ethics all of our lives with the tensions that we experience right now in the context we're in, personally, culturally, inside and outside the church, if there's such thing. And of course, in a national sense, 
what we're watching on TV or experiencing with other people that relate to us across the country and the world. Sermons are never intellectual exploration of ideas. I think faith is not real unless we make a daily attempt to live it up. No matter how absurd, no matter how obscure, and perhaps even countercultural these ideas, the commandments are. So the heart of this sermon is the need for radical love. Jesus continues in the verse 27. He says this, but to you who are willing to listen. And we can safely assume these are the people that began following Jesus in verse 17. They came for two things, primarily. One, they want to hear what Jesus had to teach, the wisdom. And two, they want to be healed of the diseases, whether it's physically or something else. But what they didn't realize when they were gathering, just like you, you know, in a sense, on, on, on the floor, listening to Jesus, was there was another layer of ministry. God heals and he gives graciously. But walking with God involves serving God. There's always much more than being on the receiving end. Jesus desires us to respond to him in action. A couple points from last week. Again, I'm referring to last week because it's important for, to, for us to understand how we got here. Last week, Scott reminded us two things. This sermon, this whole, I call it the matter of sermon, was directed to a group of people that made a commitment to follow Jesus. Not just make a commitment to Jesus up here in our heads, but make a commitment to actually follow Jesus. Second point is this, the way of Jesus is the way of love. That sort of encapsulates the whole sermon here. We are to love God, we are to love God's people, that, including, that includes ourselves and his creation. But there's more. Jesus was about to move into something a lot more specific. Verse 27 and 28. This is how he began. The address. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. And bless those who curse you. Now, there's no specific reference as to how we define enemies. There's, there's no job description. There's no checklist. But Jewish people know they know the passage in Leviticus 19.18. They know that very well. Love your neighbor as yourself. So chances are we're talking about people that are in the surrounding, you know, sort of area or like in their lives of these people that were listening to Jesus. So it's not hard to imagine. These, could be a, these people could be a fellow Jew or could be a Roman soldier, an official. Do good to those who hate you. And bless those who curse you. What is he talking about? Bless who? The people that actually wish wrong and curses us? Last week, we learned about a Greek work called Makarios. Blessed it. In the Beatitudes, it means richness and flourishing. The work in verse 28, bless, is a little different. The root of the work is actually eulogal. It's a different work from the, the one before and uh, earlier. It means speaking well of somebody, speaking well of something. It only appears two times. Well, I think more than two times, but the, I can get the reference as Matthew 5, 44 and Romans 12, 14. 
Um, those are the what I call the prominent reference. The term eulogy, as you can probably tell, is actually derived from this root. Speaking well of somebody, as we say farewell to someone on earth. So radical love means a very atypical and unusual response. We speak well and we pray for the person who wishes evil done on us. And that's loving our enemies. That's not easy. That's not an easy task. And I have no trick or any tips as to how you can actually do that. It will likely take a lifetime of learning and adjusting. But it's important to note this blessing, when we speak well of somebody, does not originate from our own hearts. In a way, we actually do not bless these people. But God does. And when we are asked to bless others, we're actually making that attempt. Essentially, we're making that attempt to connect to people with the agape love, to the love of God. Frederick Buechner, I always appreciate his writing. He's, um, I, think, I always think he's a mystical writer. Uh, he talks about, like his quotes are like so deep that I can never understand fully. He, uh, but he, he, Roman Catholic background, but you know, very eclectic in his way of approaching spirituality. And he says this about blessing. I think it's really important for us to, to read this. The word blessing has come to mean more often than not a pious formality such as ministers are continuing being roped into giving at high school graduations, Terry and Winnie Rose and the like, and to say, God bless you to a person unless a person happened to have just niece. And it's generally regarded as a, as a pious eccentricity. It was not always so. That's what the point, the point I want to stress. In a biblical sense, if you give me your blessing, you irreversibly convey into my life not just something on a beneficent power and vitality of who you are, but something of the life-giving power of God in whose name the blessing is given. One of my colleagues um, at the hospital, he's a, a Romanian Orthodox priest. He's a good friend of mine. And I learned a lot from him on the importance of rituals. But one of the things that we talked about from time to time is like, like, cause people ask, he works in mental health. So everybody's Jesus, like, oh, I'm Jesus. You know, can you bless me? And then he goes to mental health. So he, he got asked to bless people a lot. And I asked him, what do you do? He goes, he doesn't bless people often. He insists, he said, we should not bless people lightly. But when we do, we always do it in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now you go, well, we don't do that, right? I'm not a pastor, I'm not a priest. But when we bless someone, like, like Buechner reminds us, we are essentially going beyond wishing somebody out a well. If I want to wish you well, I don't need to bless you. I can send you a card from Hallmark. That would do the work. But when I bless you in the name of the Father and of the Holy Spirit, I'm actually inviting and instilling the grace and the presence of God into your life. So I'm actually wishing you well in a holy sense. So blessing our enemies is believing the same grace and the mercy of God working in you is at work in these folks that make your life miserable. Same God, same blessing, same grace. 
We're not that different from them. Let me just touch briefly on verse 28. Uh, it's very, I'm being sensitive. Um, we, there's a lot of sort of notion of abuse going around in, in uh, some, perhaps in a personal sense, but also in, as a country, and, and I, I don't have time to get into it. But verse 28 reminds us, tells us, I guess, to pray for those who abuse you. Whew. Praying for the abusers is the hardest things that we can do. Um, this is quite a few years ago, probably 10 years ago almost, when, when I first met Nelson and we were in, in spiritual director's training. And I remember we had a lecture from someone who, who comes and I forgot the topic, but she talked about her own story first before talking, giving us uh, her lecture. And she told us that she had a call. That's her life. She works on a farm, but like part-time, and so she can make a living. But the other times that she has, her real job, if I can call it, is to pray for the abusers on earth. That's her call. That's, that's a very strong call that she had from the Lord, that her work is to pray for the abusers. Not the abuse, but the abusers. When we pray for abusers, it requires a total submission of ourselves. It's very much like blessing. Praying for the abuser requires that self-emptying act to go all the way. And that's the cornerstone of the Jesus ethic. We're not nice people. We're not nice people. We are more than just nice people. We are the people of non-resistance. We repay evil with love. Of course, it is important to point out that we don't undermine the importance of Nonviolent resistance and justice. That's something we'll get into a little bit shortly. You know, people do have to pay for the, the wrong acts that they committed towards others. Let's continue with the text, 30, uh, 29 to 30. So what do we do when we love? There are four illustrations here. These are, these are not precepts. These are illustrations. Now Luke 6, 29 is probably one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. It's probably the one that caught your attention as we were reading it earlier. It invites scholarly debates, but also a practical importance that you and I relate to. Like, this is not something that is out there. Like, what do we do? Are we really gonna offer our left cheek after someone just struck our right one? Are we supposed to be a human pinata? Is that what we're called to be? Striking a person's cheek is not uncommon in Jesus' times. It's often done by someone who's superior and is a way to reprimand somebody. Um, we won't go into the text here, but if you have time, bookmark 1 Kings 22. It's a very interesting passage. There's an incident in 1 Kings 22. Um, there's a, this guy named Zedekiah. He's not the king, he's the false prophet. And this Zedekiah guy was furious after the good prophet Micaiah mocked him of his heresy in front of King Ahab as they were about to, you know, sort of think about, shall we, in, you know, sort of get into a battle. So Zedekiah was upset at like, this bad prophet, or the, you know, the bad guy, was upset at the good prophet Micaiah. And what he did was he went up to Micaiah and he snapped Micaiah across the face 
in front of the king. Now, Micaiah didn't fight back physically, but he proclaimed Zedekiah would fail in the end. And that was the way that Micaiah, the good prophet, retaliated. In the Jewish culture, the greatest insult was a snap on the cheek. It was an ultimate and deliberate gesture of disrespect. So you want to really, you know, to embarrass somebody. That's what you do. You use the back of your right hand and you snap the other person on the right cheek, right? Because if I'm facing you and your right cheek is right here, so I use the back. You don't, we, they don't use the front, they use the back. And they snap the person on the right cheek to induce insult in a very public setting. Sometimes this happens in a synagogue. But why the right hand? Not the left. Now, according to some Bible commentators, the left hand is never used to fight because it's a dirty hand. What do you do? Like in the culture when there's no toilet paper, you use the left hand to do these tasks. So nobody used the left hand for any important functions because it's a dirty hand. It's, I don't want to say it's defiled because it's not, but it's a dirty hand. And when we have important functions like that, you know, embarrassing somebody or you know, actually diminishing somebody's status publicly, that has a very symbolic significance. We do not use our left hand, we use our right hand. So using the left hand to rebuke somebody publicly is a no-no in the high context culture because it lowers the severity of the insult and the authority of the initiator. It defeats the very purpose of reprimanding somebody. So Jesus asked us to turn the other cheek, which is the left cheek. And that presents a logistical challenge for the attacker. Think about this. If I'm trying to do this to you with my right hand, the back of my right hand, how am I going to hit your left cheek with my right hand? It has to, it has to go like this, right? So logistically, an, an autonomy, isn't, it doesn't work. It, it's kind of hard to do that, and people can get away from it. You want to look for an example of passive aggressive behavior in the Bible? That's your reference. A couple of points here. Jesus says, don't walk away. Do not retaliate with the same gesture, but you expose other people's wrongs by creatively demonstrating resistance. Don't walk away. Someone's not going to be able to snap you like this. But you expose someone's stupidity when you, when, you, when you actually go, well, hit me, hit me. By embracing a posture of non-resistance, we highlight the degree of the transgressors who act towards us. And hopefully, we can actually, not expect, but we can actually hope there's a higher chance of repentance of that person and there's a higher chance of justice for that person. Turn the other cheek when someone strikes you. Give them your undershirt when they ask for your jacket. Don't ask for the things back when it's taken away from you. Verse 31 is the pinnacle of the sermon. It's the golden rule. Something that you know, and I know, the command to love. Do to others as you would have them do to you. This is the, the message. 
in the First Nation version of the uh, translation of the Bible, it says this, help others in the same way that you want them to help you. Again, we come back to Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. Treat other people as you wish others would have treated you. But what is so special about this rule? Right? You actually think about it. You don't need to be a Christian to do this. You don't need to embrace our faith tradition. You don't need to follow Jesus to do this. I was on a phone call with um, somebody from in, um, in Eastern Canada and it was a consultation and with, uh, with a colleague in, in Halifax and we we're talking about sort of practices and how to help people when, when they're unwell and it was, it was a consultation call and and this woman, she's Buddhist, she's a really seasoned practitioner and she was talking about how her Buddhist tenets, her beliefs, was able to help her in achieving some of the things that she really want to do with, uh, within the mental health context and we're just having a conversation and I thought, wow, I never thought of you know, how you can actually do it in such a way and, and it opened my eye quite a bit. Non-judgment, non-attachment, bearing witness. It sounds very similar to what we believe um, in our faith back, uh, traditions. Selflessness, giving up oneself's serving desires, emptying of self, altruistic endeavors. Anyone can do it. They're not exclusive to Christians. We don't, we don't have this, the franchise that you know, only Christians can do this kind of work. Buddhists would have done the same thing to one another. In fact, I would even argue some of my Buddhist friends, when it comes to doing good, loving one another, they're more diligent than us. What's so special about Jesus' commands here that we have to love one another? He challenges audience, 32 to 34. If you only love those who loved you, what credit it is to you? It's not uncommon in Jesus' times to believe that if I do something good to you, you will return the same, you know, thing in return. If you only do good, which is the expression of verse 32, to those who, who do good to you, who accredited this to you? Why should God give a gracious response to such action? Matthew 7, 11 tells us, even the sinners, they know how to treat the kids right. They know, they know how to love the kids. And you lend to the others only for potential returns. What credit it is to you? I'm going to scratch your back. So I know that when I need it, you can scratch mine. Is this an example of what disciples of Jesus would do? Here the scripture calls us to dig deeper. The standard of Jesus is higher. Not on the quantity or the quality, but the depth of the heart that requires when we serve. It's like going from undergrad to graduate school on practical spirituality on the divine love. So you may ask, what is the key to gracious living according to the teachings here? And there's no other place for the correct answer, but the hardest thing in the universe right now, and that is the word or work of the day. <laughs> there you go. There you go. It's difficult, huh? 
This is not today's, by the way, just in case you're wondering. Anybody know the answer? I mean, I'm sorry that you cannot see on the screen for those of you online, but you will see in the slide. What is the answer? The answer is Jesus. That's the answer. I know, it's hard, right? No, I, I, I make sure this is right. The answer is Jesus. As followers of Jesus, our call is to be gracious like him. Let's look at verses 35 to 36. Love your enemies. Do good. Lend and expect nothing. That's a summary of the action. And then Jesus moves to the very eye-catching point in 35D. The reward is awesome. Oh, wait a minute. There's a reward here. This is not about a gift in a way that we usually perceive, but rather the joy of knowing God delights in us when we do, when we engage in such act of service. And moreover, the outcome of this reflects actually where you're at in your relationship with God. It's a very practical outcome that actually reflects how deeply we are in touch or in love with God and His people. So when we love the unthankful and the wicked, we emulate the grace and the mercies of God. Jesus calls us to be compassionate because our Father is compassionate. So how can we begin? How can we do this? I think it starts with a humble, non-judgmental posture, which is hard, but it's essential to the way that we listen to other people. A lot of holy patience and perhaps a lot of radical foot washing. Now, Jesus knows that we're not Him. We cannot love like Him, but we can start somewhere. And that is from our true self, which is often, maybe not often, always, the imperfect, broken one that we carry wherever we go. Last week, um, I'm a fan of hers, Kate Bowler, and uh, she's a prof of history at uh, Duke University. She posted uh, a story on Instagram, and, and she said this, it's so easy for us to confuse carpe diem, which is what we say, seize the day, with crape diem, which is seize the garbage. And, and she said, this isn't the two things that we try to do in our lives, right? We try to carpe diem, right? We wake up, we have a really good coffee, and then we try to go, I'm gonna carpe diem. And by nine or 10 o'clock, or maybe even earlier, then we realize we're not carpe DMing. We are actually crape DMing. We're seizing the garbage, not the proverbial garbage that we think, maybe garbage that we didn't expect. We want to seize the day and do wonderful things, but on most days, at least I can speak for myself, the only thing that I can seize is my garbage. That brokenness that I have. And that's okay. Because if we can exhibit the perfect love of God, then we don't need Jesus in our lives. If our own humanistic endeavor is sufficient enough for doing good, that Jesus would only be the nicely dressed gooseberry on our dinner plate when we go for dine out. It looks pretty, but we may not touch it at all. We may not need it. We may even take it home, but we may not touch it at all. 
I'm showing my age with this slide that you're about to see. Um, years ago, uh, one of my favorite artists, Michael Card, he wrote a song in his um, album, uh, The Hidden Face of God, and it's called To a Broken God. It's a beautiful song. I'm not gonna sing it for you here, because I'm a terrible singer, but it's not your typical contemporary Christian music. It's an album of lament. And this is part of the lyrics. It says this, I'm unaware, I was unaware how it is with the broken God. And I thought of you as above my pain. And he said, lost in my despair. So it is with broken heart. I never dreamed that you could feel the same. It's the very brokenness of God on the cross that redeems us. It's that very brokenness. Like Jesus literally was broken on the cross. So we're here today. The very core of the gospel is based on the emptying of Jesus on the cross to bear our transgressions. And his very own brokenness, Jesus accomplished something extraordinary that no one has ever done in history. And that is the perfect love. The perfect love that we try to emulate, we try to follow, we try to copy. None of us are perfect, and that's such good news, I tell you. It takes away our burden of doing everything. We're free to love people in our own imperfections. For the divine love of Christ replenishes and backfills the rest. We're not trying to do everything. We are simply asked to present ourselves and do our best to love our enemies, to bless our enemies. And if we cannot do it, guess what? God backfills the rest in his own time. Alison Cook, a clinical counselor based in Boston, who has written a lot on faith and psychology, and she said this, don't live for yourself, live from yourself. Don't live for yourself, live from yourself. I, was, I have this down in my script, and I was debating whether I would tell you or not, but I think I would. And Usually I don't do a lot of self-disclosure when I speak. Um, years ago, uh, my, my grandmother died, and, and it was a really difficult way to die. She had, a, she had an MI, um, uh, was it MI? Uh, myocardial infection, she had um, a heart attack. And she died on her own, in her own condo. In the, in the Bay Area in, in, in San Francisco. And so, you know, we got called and, and I had to fly down and I'll spare the details, but we, we, we did the funeral and that was really hard. And, and then came back, grieve, do our thing, and, you know, get back to our regular lives. And, and my grandma was very close to me. This is my mom's mom. And I was like, okay, I kept thinking, I think I need to make another trip down the road so I can actually so grief properly. I don't know why I had to do that, but I just knew I had to do it. So a few years later, I had to happened to be quite empty in my gas tank in my work, and I needed a little bit of a getaway. So Phoebe was very nice and letting me go down to the Bay Area for a few days, and, and I had a, happened to have a conference there too. Went there, finished the conference, had a few days, walked around, sort of went to where she used to loiter, where she lived, and just do a lot of prayer walk as I said goodbye to grandma. And 
so I finished it and I have sort of like an afternoon before I, I flew back to the to, to Vancouver and so I have some time to kill and so I go well, okay what do I do and so walk around I right? don't waste time are you in a foreign city uh, walk around and a lot of hills in, in the Bay Area if you've been there and if you have been you know walking around it's not easy and then I roll my ankle and I'm, I'm usually I'm pretty good you know paying attention but I roll my ankle it was so swollen it was I thought I could just you know, sort of, I'll walk it, right? Walk it off. And it was after five minutes, I rolled my ankle and it was so swollen. It was like sort of 1.5 times bigger than what it used to be. I go, oh crap, this is not good. I still have to walk back to the hostel that I stay and I had to, like, I was supposed to take the bus and go to the airport and I go, I don't think I can do that. So I thought, okay, I need to go to a place where someone can look after me. So it happened there, a block away, there was a, a foot massage place. So I walk in not wanting a foot massage. I just said, <laughs> I need some help. And so of course you have to pay for it. And then the guy was very helpful. He, he, he put some eyes on me and he, he actually gave me a very gentle massage on my ankle. And so an hour, I spent an hour there and I was like so grateful for the love and the, and the help that he was, able to give me, he was able to give me. Thinking about my grandma, thinking about everything. And I walk out that store, sort of rehab. I walk out and I turn to my left. I still remember this as if this happened yesterday. It was a strange scene. There was a homeless person standing and there was a lady, middle-aged lady, she was opening her purse. It looked like she was about to give this homeless person some monies. And she opened her purse and, and then she closed it. And she said something to that person. It's probably, I'm sorry, I don't have money or whatever. And that homeless man was so upset, he actually bursted out like, yeah, my God, whoa, are you doing this to me? And, and then the lady started to walk away from him towards me. And then we locked eyes, she looked at me. And I, I still remember she has such a remorseful look on her face, you know, and I, I'm, I was guessing that person probably wanted to give this homeless man something, but maybe she had a hundred dollar bill and she wasn't going to, I don't know, but she walked away. And she looked at me and she walked away and the guy was like, going very upset, probably 30, 40 feet away from me. And immediately the spirit spoke to me and said, Lawrence, you were just looked after by somebody. Why don't you help this man? And so I was still kind of limping, right? So I was, so I, I, and I, I, I knew it. And when, when God speaks to you in your life, he goes, you have to do it. And I had no much, no idea how much money I had in my pocket. I actually didn't even look at it the cash I had in my pocket. I, and so the Lord said, give him your money. So I took out, I forgot what, what it's $15 or something. I had my hand. I walk up to the, the gentleman. I said, Mr. Can I give you this? And I was like limping, like towards him. And, but he, you know, anyway, I caught him. He grabbed him. And he thanked me. And then he said these things to me. He looked at me and he said, Mr. Jesus will bless you. Jesus will bless you. Let's go to the last slide. Leading a loving life, self-knowledge and self-love are the fruits of knowing and loving God. You see better 
than what is intended by the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. Laying our hearts open totally to God leads to a love of ourselves that enables us to give wholehearted love to our fellow human beings. And in the seclusion of our hearts, we learn to know the hidden presence of God. And with that spiritual knowledge, we can lead a loving life. The sermon is done, but the sermon has just begun. And my challenge to you in the hall here, online at home, or wherever you are, and to myself, is to continue to reflect on this passage and think about what that means when we ask to love, which is really difficult. I'm not saying this is easy. But let's do this not just as individual, but as a community, as a church family, as a community of faith, that we can actually embrace our brokenness and launch forward in our loving actions because what Jesus has done for us on the cross as we prepare ourselves for the table. The Lord be with you as you continue to worship.